Our text for this morning is Psalm 22. The superscript reads, To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. And here is the word of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shared, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me, A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard When he cried to him, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all those who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Pray with me, friends. Father, Teach us to pray and to trust and to hope in you this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you now may be seated.
St. Augustine once said, God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. No matter how many years go by since Augustine's time in the 5th century, that statement is still true, isn't it? We advance technologically and scientifically at rates which seem unimaginable. Wouldn't you guys agree that we are the most stunningly technologically advanced generation in history? Aren't you glad that that has eliminated human suffering? Not so much. C.S. Lewis said, The real problem is not why some pious, humble, believing people suffer, but why some do not. See, Lewis hits on a false belief. Many people hold this. Many people believe that if they could just be right with God, they wouldn't face suffering in this life. But personal experience, and I would say more importantly, the scriptures tell us that suffering is a component that is bound to our human existence. It is not eliminated because one is forgiven by God. In fact, following Christ often leads to greater suffering as a lost world attacks. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul understood that to know Christ is to know suffering. There is no reprieve from pain just because your sins are forgiven. And in Psalm 22, David writes about suffering, real suffering. David's writing about the kind of darkness where life is crashing down around him in every way. And it just seems like God's not helping. David is hurting. David is confused. David is frightened. You ever been through a time like that? You ever fear for your very life? You ever fear for your very sanity? You ever thought, I would do anything I could if it would just make this pain stop? What what should you do in a time like that? How do we handle it? How do we pray? Here in this magnificent psalm, we will watch David as David finds what I call hope in the darkness. That's our title of our message. And there's going to be a pattern in how David responds to God. And if we, if we use it, we'll find that this pattern is helpful to you and me today as much as it was for David 3,000 years ago. Now, before we begin, I have a challenge for you. I want you to do something for me that's a little weird. For the time being... Can I ask you to read this and think through it with me without much in the way of New Testament eyes? This is one of the clearest portions in all of Scripture that point to Jesus at the cross of Calvary, and we will get there. But I'm asking you, when we go through it the first time, will you try to set your mind only to the mindset of David? Would you do that with me? Okay, will you do it? Okay, I know it's hard. Kay gets on to me when I tell her to do stuff like this, just so you guys know. I'm going to find three big sections in this psalm. It breaks 1 to 10, 11 to 21, 22 to the end. 
And every one of those sections is going to have a few points inside of it to tell you how to respond when you feel pain, suffering, darkness, and hopelessness. So are you ready? First section, section one. I'm going to use the word focus in this section. When you suffer, focus. And here's our first point. I'm going to call it A inside section one. You're going to get some A, Bs, and Cs, okay? First, admit your need. Admit your need. For you who are writing things down, you've got section one, focus. Point A, admit your need. Verse one and two say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but, you, but I find no rest. David opens this psalm, friends, with a cry that is deep inside his soul. He asks God, God, why am I forsaken? Now, notice two things right away. First, what does David call God? What word comes before God? My God. David has not stopped believing in God. His faith is still there. God is still David's God. But he feels the pain. David feels the pain, and he expresses his pain to his God. David says he feels forsaken because he prays, but deliverance doesn't come. He prays day and night, but it feels like nothing in his life circumstances is changing. And for any person, regardless of how many years you've been a Christian, if you feel like God is not answering your prayers, it is painful. To feel that your cries are unheard or disregarded by the Almighty is to feel utterly alone. But notice what David does. David brings his pain to his God. There's got to be some hope in God that David still has because he wouldn't have ever mentioned this to God if he didn't believe God was there. You don't, you don't pray like that if you don't think God's there. The act of telling God your pain for David, that act of telling God his pain is evidence that David knows God's there and he believes God cares. When you feel the pain of life crash down around you, you need to do what David does here. You need to cry out to God. I'm not saying that you get to blame and accuse and curse and dishonor God with what you say. What I'm saying is if you feel the pain, if you feel the darkness, if you feel the despair, express it to God. Admit your need for him because without doing that, you're not going to move anywhere forward. Now our second point, B inside this section, think biblically about God. Think biblically about God. Look at verse 3 through 5. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. One of the greatest temptations when we feel the pain of suffering is to start raising questions about the character of God. Why are you letting this happen to me? 
I thought you were supposed to love me. I thought you were supposed to be good. I thought you were supposed to be just. David never raises questions like that here. David points to two things to declare God's character. First, he calls God holy. That's exactly how God reveals himself to Israel in the scriptures. Then David points to the faithfulness God has shown his forefathers in Israel. This is a biblical argument. David knows God not only declared himself to be holy, but God proved by his actions in protecting Israel, rescuing her from Egypt, bringing her across the Red Sea, feeding her in the desert, defeating the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. He proved that he is faithful and he is powerful and able to keep his promises. God is both holy and faithful. And when we feel the darkness of suffering creeping in, it is crucial that we don't let our minds be driven by our emotions. How many of you have emotions? Are emotions real? Yeah. But do they always tell you the truth? No. Your emotions are real. But your emotions are often untrustworthy and quite misleading. Fact is, God's goodness, justice, mercy, all of God's other attributes, they are not dependent upon your circumstances. God has proved his character time and time again. And if we're in pain, we might miss that God has already done all that he ever needs to do to prove his love for us. All right, New Testament thinkers, how has God proved to you that his love is solid and unchangeable? He sent Jesus to die. God is good. God is loving. Even in the darkest of times, God is good. And God is loving. And it is vital that you remember those facts. So you've got to think about God from the Bible more than from your emotions if you're going to be able to handle suffering rightly because it will come. See now, third point inside this section. Think humbly about yourself. Biblically about God, humbly about yourself. Six through eight. But I'm a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. (laughs) David follows a right understanding of God's character with a fairly interesting evaluation of David's own life. David says, I'm a worm and not a man. David calls himself as lowly a thing as David can think of. He feels low, and there are other people around him who are quick to agree with him, by the way. You ever feel bad about yourself and then have somebody else agree? That's rough. David's enemies are mocking him. They're making obscene gestures at him. That's what the wagging of the head is back then. They're taunting David. They're questioning whether God loves David. And while a part of this is David's description of how his enemies are treating him, I think that there is a hint here that David knows a little of his own lowliness. You know, when many people suffer, 
We demand, God, you've got to change this. And we cry out, I don't deserve what's happening. David doesn't do that here. He declares himself a worm. He's humble before God. Humility is key to proper thinking during suffering. If you think too highly of yourself, you will be outraged when you feel pain. You'll accuse God of treating you unjustly. But if you grasp how great is your sin before a holy God, you will recognize even your suffering, no matter how intense, as less severe than you and I, in fact, deserve. We all, as sinners, deserve the full force of the wrath of God for sin. And because of that, it is a blessing if you and I receive anything less than the wrath of God in hell. Does that make sense to you? You might suffer greatly, but if it's not the hell that you deserve, it is still mercy from God. D, last one in this section. Declare your commitment to God. Declare your commitment to God. Verses 9 and 10. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. The section is wrapping up here. And David returns in his thinking to his relationship with God. My God, my God. He's expressed his pain. He's trusted God's character. He understands himself as lowly. Now David remembers his true commitment to God. David here declares, I've been in your care, God, since I was born. David, the eighth son of a seemingly insignificant shepherd from the tribe of Judah, was elevated by God's sovereign will to become the king of all Israel. David had a great faith in God. It was evidenced in his formative years. As a teenager, David told King Saul God had protected him in the fields. And then David went out by faith in God and slew the giant Goliath. David has always trusted in God for as long as David can remember. And he's not going to stop now. One more key way to think as we face pain, to focus. I'm not telling you to pretend to have faith in God so you get something from God. God sees through that. He's not impressed by that. But if you've got a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you most certainly should remember that relationship when you suffer. You should remember what a great sacrifice Jesus made in order to be able to welcome you into the family of God. You should remember the sweet fellowship with the Spirit of God that a real relationship with Jesus can bring. You should remember the declaration of trust in God that you made to be saved even as things around you appear to be falling apart, you should remember the promise of eternal life that you received from Jesus Christ. And don't allow the ugliness of this world to take your focus away from that. Most of all, remember this. Remember this. Your purpose in your relationship with God is the glory of God. And that is paramount in every circumstance, even in the hard ones.
So there's 10 verses of the psalm. What have we seen? How do you prepare to focus your mind to face and survive suffering? You tell God about your pain, but you don't forget that God is good and God is holy. Never forget to have a biblical view of God, regardless of your circumstances. Remember your own humble circumstances. Remember your lack of worthiness to demand things of God. But remember that you, if you know Jesus, are God's child and you can most certainly call on him for help in times of trouble. And that's what we're going to see David do in the next big section. So that that was all section one, A, B, C, and D. Now section two for you note takers We've gone from focus, now we're going to pray. Pray. And point A inside this section, cry out to God for help. Cry out to God for help. Look at verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Do you realize, friends, that be not far from me is the first request that David has made in this psalm? It's a big one. He has expressed that he feels forsaken. He feels abandoned. Now he asks for God to remedy it. He asks for God not to be far from him. And he recognizes he has no hope apart from God. Nobody else can help David. Danger is right there. And David has no one to whom to turn other than God himself. Going to see the rest of this, by the way. 19 to 21, they will pick this point back up. But for now, begin to recognize a majorly important step in the process of you dealing with suffering is to not neglect actually crying out to God for help. Once you're governed by biblical truth, once you've got proper biblical thinking and theology, you are free to urgently, passionately, honestly cry out to God, asking God to rescue you. And that brings us to B. Describe specifically your needs and fears. B here in the pray section. Describe specifically your needs and fears. 12 through 13, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. David is describing the enemies around him. They're like strong bulls of Bashan, well-fed, dangerous bulls. Have you ever been around bulls? Anybody here actually been around a bull? You don't mess with the bull. I grew up around him. You you get on the other side of the fence from the bull, period, because he'll kill you. These bulls are well-fed here. They're dangerous. They encircle him. He's surrounded. There's no avenue of escape. They open their mouths to devour him. Now they're roaring at him like lions, the most dangerous predators with which David would have been familiar. They roar. They threaten. They insult. They attack. Then keep going. 14 and 15. I'm poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. 
David is helpless. His strength is spent. He feels like his life is poured out like water. His joints ache with weariness. His heart, his courage, it's melted away. He is in despair. His strength is dried up like an old fragment of clay pottery. It's dusty. It's brittle. His tongue sticks to his mouth. He's thirsty. He's panting. David is physically and emotionally spent. For dogs, verse 16 have encompassed me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, David, again, the attackers, we're not bulls, we're not lions, we're dogs. In those days, dogs were roving, dirty scavengers. They weren't pets. They are like jackals. They're around him. They're waiting to pick his bone clean, bones clean when he dies. They're biting at his hands and feet. He's hungry. He's emaciated. He's thin. He's gaunt. His bones are sticking out. It looks like you could count the bones. It's like you could see his skeleton through his stretched skin. His enemies are staring at him, but there is no pity. There's only malice. These evil men are lining up to take away his last worldly possessions. They play a gambling game to see who will get his personal effects when he dies. I hope you hear when you think through these verses, the despair and the agony of this suffering man of God. David is hurting. He's in danger. He's without hope. He's surrounded. He's about to die. And you know what? Here's what I want you to get from this. David does not hesitate in this section to spell out his circumstances and his fears to God. He even tells God how he feels about it. Now, notice he's not accusing God of anything. He's just telling God about how awful things are for him. He's openly, honestly communicating with God, and then he's going to go back to asking God for help, which is the, that point A that I started this with here. 22, uh, sorry, 19 to 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. That's like 11, be not far from me. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. By the way, men's group, there's all kinds of Hebrew poetry and chiastic structure going on here. David asks God, be near, save me. He's asking God to step in and rescue him from the dangers, from the evil men, these bulls, these lions, these dogs, these dogs, these lions, these bulls. He even asks God, hurry, because <laughs> he really feels like I can't hold on much longer. Now let's put the whole section of the psalm together, this middle section. What do you see? To pray in times of suffering involves two things. One, openly, honestly, passionately declare to God your need. Two, ask God to help. Ask God to act. On the one hand, you tell God your need, but you don't just sit and whine and complain. Neither, when you're asking for help, do you just say, help me in general. You spell out the specifics so you can ask for help in the specifics. You ask for help, 
with some reality of telling God this is exactly what's going on. Get very real. Get very honest, very open with God. Don't accuse God of doing you wrong in your circumstances because you can know already, if you know your Bible, God's character is perfect. But remember your lowliness and cry out to God, please God, hurry, please God, deliver me from the evil befalling me. Now what do you do once you've focused and once you've prayed? What comes next? It's the final section of the psalm, section three, and I'm going to use the word trust. Focus, pray, trust. An A inside this, promise God the glory. Promise God the glory. Look at 22 to 26. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. See, David didn't just pray here. He trusts God. He doesn't pray expecting that his prayers are going to be ignored by God. He prays expecting that God is going to answer those prayers. Thus, David is able to make statements like what we just read. In all of verses 22 through 26, David is promising God the glory. Why do we live? We live to give glory and honor to the God who made us. David here promises that he will give God that glory that God is due. He plans to praise God for the answer to his prayer. That's good. Everything we see in 22 to 26 is worship. It's all the declaration of God's greatness, either in corporate worship, in the general community around David, or in a celebrative meal. Can you guys imagine God setting up a meal for people to eat for his praise? Yeah. What we should learn from this is simple. Promise God the glory. It is foolish to pray to God, asking God for help, or asking God for deliverance, if you have no intention of glorifying God for the good things God does. We should expect as children of God that God will do great things, that God will do marvelous things, and we ought also to expect that it will be our joy and it is our responsibility to praise God for those great works. So when you pray asking God for help, promise God the glory for doing what you're asking. Don't try to buy God off. I'll trade you a little bit of glory if you do what I want. That's not going to work. But sincerely vow to God, I will give you the glory, do your name, and expect that God's going to work things out rightly and promise God that you'll praise him when they work out rightly. Most certainly, keep your promise. Give God the thanks and the glory that God deserves for the great things that God does. And B, last one. Have you got all of them written down, by the way? I'm so impressed. Trust God for the future. Trust God for the future. 
27 to the end. (laughs) So good. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. That's our future. David's final evidence of hope or trust in God is that David expects that the knowledge of God's greatness is going to resound all over the entire world. David knows God is the king. God is the king over all kings. David knows that no one in the world, no political leader, no religious leader, no power of any sort will ever stand up to the awesome majesty and sovereignty of God. God will reign. God's glory will will be known. God's plan will not fail. There is no chance that happens. God is going to do what God has planned to do and no one, no one, no disease, no government, no nothing can ever thwart God's plan. David finds hope in the sovereign power of God and Christian, so should you. When you suffer, remember, he whom you serve is the king over all kings. He is the Lord who will rule the nations. He is the God who created this world and the God who will set right all that has ever gone wrong. Take comfort in that God and God's great coming glory and let that comfort get you through your dark time of suffering. Hard times will come in your life And hard times will come in my life. And the only question that we should be asking is when and how long? But if we follow the pattern we see in David here, we can find hope in the darkness, can't we? We cry out to God. We declare our need to God. We tell him about our pain. We remember that God is exactly who he claims to be in the Bible. And we let the Bible, not our emotions and not our circumstances, direct our understanding of who God is. We remember that we're sinners and we don't deserve favor from God. But we trust in the fact that God has made us his children through Jesus Christ. We tell God exactly what struggles threaten us. And we ask God to step in and make a big difference. And we trust God. We promise God the glory for what God will do in the way God handles our situation. We know things may not work out in our lives as we, in our limited wisdom, want them to. But we take courage in the confident hope God is King of Kings and God's will will be done. And I'll say this. David is not the only one who's ever worked through this pattern. You know that, right? When you all read this, I asked you early on, think David and don't switch to the New Testament. How many of you did that? How well did you do, Kay? Not well. well. (laughs) Let's talk about why not. I don't blame you. Not one bit. David's not the only one to go through this pattern. 
When I, if you hear the phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who do you think of? Isn't it significant that Jesus references this psalm? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me while on the cross? Jesus suffered as was described here. Jesus suffered as grievously as anybody in history. And in that suffering, what did Jesus do? Jesus remembered the character of God the Father. And Jesus trusted in his relationship with his Father. And Jesus cried out to his Father for help. And Jesus trusted his Father's provision. And if that can be comfort for our Lord on the cross, it ought to bring you and me comfort today, huh? Yeah, this psalm is about more than how you and I find hope in a general time of suffering. This psalm predicts the death of Jesus Christ on the cross to bring to you and me eternal salvation. Let's look at the similarities between the psalm and the death of Jesus a little bit more than a thousand years later. And let these things ring in your mind this week, often called Holy Week, the Passion Week. Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday on the way. Let your mind think about these things. You just keep your eyes on the psalm. I'll read some New Testament too, okay? Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. Take note. They make mouths at me. They wag their hands, heads. Take note. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Now listen to Matthew 27, 39 to 44. And those who passed by derided him, that's like mocking, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. Sound familiar? For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. How about verse 15 of Psalm 22? My strength is dried up like a pot shared and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. Do you get that? Jesus declared his thirst so that part of the psalm would be perfectly fulfilled. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen through 18. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Matthew 27, 35 to 36. And when they had crucified him, what is crucifixion? Piercing the hands and the feet. You know, don't you, that when David wrote Psalm 22 at 1000 BC, nobody was crucifying yet, right? That hadn't been invented yet. David's talking about the dogs around him. But here it's perfectly clear what God meant. 
Then it says, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. They sat down encircling the cross. Everything that was written in the psalm happened. Verse 1 of the psalm said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Matthew 27, verse 45 and 46, the Bible says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Next week, Lord willing, when we get here, we'll be celebrating the resurrection of the Savior who died like that. We'll go back to John's gospel and we'll be reminded of how the death of Jesus Christ saves the souls of every single person who comes to him in faith. But for now, let me say this. Jesus Christ lived, suffered, and died to pay for the sins of every person God will ever forgive. And let me declare to you that God commands all people everywhere to repent and come to Jesus for life because Jesus rose from the grave. Even as we see how to have hope as we suffer, we see that the death of Jesus Christ is the only means we have for having hope forever. So I urge you, turn to Jesus and find forgiveness. And if you have Jesus, praise him. Trust him in times of pain. Focus on him, pray to him, trust in him, and find genuine hope in the darkness. Let's pray together, friends. Lord God, you're so good. And Lord, I recognize that the only hope I have is the Lord Jesus Christ. God, you are good. You are faithful. You are everything your word declares you to be. I plead with you, Lord. Help us. For Christians, help them to find comfort in this psalm as they see how to think and how to pray and how to trust. But also let this remind us so clearly of Jesus that everyone, even those who haven't yet come to know you, run to Jesus for mercy. Thank you for your word. Do your holy work in our hearts. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.